Okay, everybody. Well, welcome to Halloween. Um, I was asking our leadership team maybe what should be the, the topic, and we had a couple of these what we call defeater beliefs. Remember, uh, if you've been tracking with us, a defeater belief is a belief that if you hold it, it means other truth claims aren't even worth considering. So it'd be like if I told you that when we were setting up for the party uh, on Sunday afternoon, I looked out in my backyard and there was a fire-breathing dragon. And there's nobody here that's gonna ask me more questions about my truth claim because you have a defeater belief that fire-breathing dragons don't exist. And there are a number of these sorts of beliefs. Every culture has them. Ironically, sometimes one culture's defeater beliefs actually contradict another's. That's gonna be relevant to the topic tonight. And so we've been looking at, at some of these various things. The series has been titled, Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In. And the full quote is from a guy named N.T. Wright. It goes this way. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Chances are I don't believe in that God either. And that can be actually a very helpful thing uh, to do when you're talking to people about religion, which shouldn't be off limits, I don't think. Um, talk about what you actually think about God, not just what you don't like, right? And so tonight we're going to be talking about probably the most difficult question there is. So we have... Um, we're going to talk about hell tonight, fitting for Halloween, and then we are going to talk about violence in the Bible. Does the Bible, you know, support violence? I think that was the topic that was uh, voted on, and uh, so we've got some fun topics left. But then we also are going to talk about assurance. How can we actually know that we're a Christian? Is our doubts incompatible with true faith. We'll talk about that as well. Those will be our last three weeks. And then next semester, I'm going to go through the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is one of my favorite letters. It's actually really helpful if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And this is why. There are a lot of people that say, well, you know, there were some Christians believe this, some Christians believe this, and, you know, then, you know, there were all these different competing ideas, and eventually the, the Catholic Church sort of, you know, suppressed all the dissenting voices, and we ended up with Christianity. One of the best ways to figure out what people really care about is to figure out what makes them angry. The letter to the Galatians is the angriest letter we have in the New Testament. Therefore, it's actually a great way for you to figure out what really mattered to the early church. It's an early letter and it gives us great access into what really mattered and what was really mattered enough to be angry about the distortion of it. That actually ties into what we're talking about tonight. The idea of how can a loving God send people to hell? I'm sure that's an issue you've thought about um, and, and maybe you've got a good answer for it. I'll just say this. I don't know if I have the kind of good answer that resolves all of the questions. But I, I, I think that that's actually sort of true about a lot of these things. I think the Bible tells us the kinds of things that help put some of these questions in a context to where we can continue to follow God even without having all of our questions answered to the level at which there are not other questions. And I think this is one of those. There is a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29. John Calvin, who a lot of people think was a good theologian, some people think it was the devil, but um, he said that was his favorite verse. And do you know what that verse says? What has been revealed belongs to us, and what is secret belongs to the Lord. It's always important that we understand God has not told us everything. Yet, 
We want to go as far as we can in understanding what he has said. We have to be careful about speculating beyond that, but we don't want to just be content with just a very superficial understanding of the Christian faith. One of my favorite verses in 1 John, it says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. For many people who've grown up in Christian youth groups, that is a paradigm, world-transforming verse, if you really understand what it's saying. It's saying, rather than you knowing and relying on your love for God, we know and rely on God's love for us. And that is a completely different thing. But it's hard to rely on the love God has for us if we don't know much about it. And here's the irony about this topic tonight. It's one of the most difficult questions, but it's also a surprising doorway into understanding the love God has for us. So we're going to look at this topic. Now, on the issue of hell, I do not presume to be able to give a kind of response that would make us all feel good. But I'm in good company because both Paul and Jesus express great angst over those who refuse to embrace the gospel. And we must never talk about this topic of hell in a glib manner. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. When it, when in, in, in the Hebrew way of speaking, when you double something, that's the, that's the, the way that you say things of great emotional uh, impact. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, but you were unwilling. That's the language of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Paul in Romans chapter 9 says he has unceasing anguish in his heart over his fellow countrymen, the Jews, who've refused to embrace the gospel. So it's not a glib topic for Jesus or Paul. Jesus actually takes it upon himself to talk more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And I think that's intentional. I think he took that burden on himself. So we don't have to pretend that hell doesn't bother us. Yet, we don't have the right to edit God. And the Bible talks about it quite a lot. So let's look at one of those places in Luke chapter 16. I'll pick up reading at verse 19. This is one of the parables that Jesus told. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, 
and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's probably not your favorite thing that Jesus ever taught, right? It's not mine. Now, it is a parable, right? And we'll talk about that. I don't think we need to press every detail too far. But I think rather than just saying, I don't like this, what I want to encourage us to consider is, is it true? Is it true? There are lots of things that are true that I don't like. It doesn't help to live in denial. I was thinking about my little brother, um, who I do like. Um, but uh, when he was little, probably, probably six, seven, eight, something like that, I remember he was out playing in our backyard, and I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I do remember he ended up with like a pretty jagged cut um, in his arm. I think he had fallen. We, had, we were always making forts out of pieces of wood or you know, broken countertops or whatever we could find. There was like a railroad track and a bunch of junk behind our house, and we'd always drag that stuff up, try and make forts. And I think he had tripped and fallen. He'd cut his arm. I remember we, were, we had to go to the hospital, and, um, you know, they're, they're looking at it and they're like, oh, we're going to definitely have to put stitches in this. And um, my brother was a little freaked out at that idea. The doctor patiently explained to them, to him, Corey, if we don't stitch this up, we're going to have to amputate your arm. And then the doctor turned around and kind of went back to his preparations, turns around with the needle to numb it up. And my brother said, wait, I'm still deciding. LAUGHTER Uh, the reality, the reality is, it's not a choice. It's not a choice. You're gonna lose your arm if we don't face reality, right? There are things we don't like, and the question is, is it true? Now, Christians are asked to believe some difficult things, but believing in miracles and God creating the world, even Jesus raising from the dead, I don't know if those are as difficult to believe as this. But let's back up a minute. When we think about this objection, that a loving God would send people to hell, I think it's worth asking, where do we actually get the idea that God is a loving God anyway? Where did, where did mankind come up with that idea? I don't know if you know. It's not in any of the ancient pagan religions. Most of the ancient pagan religions um, have various myths of the world coming into existence generally through violence and warfare and a power struggle between the various gods. It's not part of Buddhism. They don't have a personal God, and love is something that is expressed between persons. It's not even part of Islam. They have a belief that God is merciful, but that's not the same as God wanting to marry himself to his people, that's offensive to a Muslim. So where does the loving God idea come from that we're using to sort of hold at bay what the Bible says? 
And the answer is from the Bible. The idea of a loving God comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from anywhere else. If you look at the world, I don't think you would conclude that the world is ruled by a loving God. At least not the world that I look at, with suffering, brokenness all around. We believe God is loving not because we've experienced it in our world or because it's been discovered by any one of various religions, but because the Bible teaches that. And the Bible also teaches that there are consequences beyond the grave for how we live in this life. And the question is, do we have the right to pick and choose among revealed truth? St. Augustine said it well when he said, if we accept what we like in the Gospels and reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospel we believe, but ourselves. And there are people, and I think all of us have this temptation to basically use the Bible and and sort of center on the things that buttress what we already believe. But when was the last time the Bible actually told you, no, you're wrong, you need to change what you believe about something? That's actually one of the tests about whether the Bible really is a functional authority in any sort of way, or if you're just using it to kind of have a conversation with yourself because you'll only let it say what you want it to say. This is kind of the place where the rubber meets the road. Again, I don't like it, but I can't edit it out. Now let's look at this text. Like I said, it's a parable, so you have to be careful about pressing all the details. But that's actually true of all the descriptions of heaven and hell in the Bible. They're all designed to stretch our imaginations. It's worse than you can imagine, and heaven is better than you can believe. They're not there to give you a detailed blueprint. As a matter of fact, if you pressed all the descriptions of hell or the living darkness or all these sorts of things and all the images of heaven, if you press them all, literally, they actually contradict each other in places. Now, I think one of the barriers to believing what the Bible says are all kinds of images and descriptions we've seen and heard, many of which are ridiculous. Satan does not rule in hell. It's not his little paradise kingdom, tormenting poor souls who've been tossed in there against their will. The Bible, like I said, uses descriptions that have taken literally contradict each other, like darkness, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Darkness is actually the image that Jesus uses the most. Darkness. But it's not the way our popular culture thinks of this. And like I said, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else. Now, whatever else you get out of this parable, it's clear that Jesus is pressing this point. There are consequences for how we live here and a certain just connection between life before and life after death. And I think that makes sense to a lot of us. Every one of us resonates with the idea of justice and recoils against injustice. And nobody is really happy that Hitler was just able to take his life and that's the end of it. It just doesn't seem right, does it? 
Now, that could just be, of course, wishful thinking, but there's something built into our psyche that screams out that all the loose ends need to be tied up. And like I said, the Bible regularly promises God will come to judge, and that's good news and something to rejoice over. The Bible abhors the idea of loose ends being left untied. But it is interesting, like I said, some of these defeater beliefs actually contradict each other from culture to culture. It's interesting to see how for some cultures and some periods in time, the idea that God is forgiving is scandalous. While for modern liberal Westerners like us, most of the people in this room, the idea that God judges is what's so offensive. Bishop N.T. Wright in his excellent book, Surprised by Hope, uh, explains it this way. The picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief that there will indeed be a judgment in which the Creator God will set the world right once and for all. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And to the people that the Bible was written to, who were not in the seat of power, but were the poor and the oppressed, God said at one point to Israel, I chose you because you were the smallest and most insignificant group of people and the most stiff-necked, stubborn group of people. They were not running the world. They were not the powerful. This was great news that God would judge the wicked one day. Yet verse 26 is one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here, from there to us. Now, I don't think this is the picture, this isn't the picture the Bible gives of other, uh, in other places about eternal judgment, that they, people can see each other from one to the other and they can converse, right? There, there are some, I think, sort of imaginative details. I think the point here is really the consequences that are fixed and unchangeable after death for how you've lived here. That seems to be the point. What's interesting is the rich man is not named. That's actually not unusual. What is unusual is that Lazarus is named. I don't know of another parable where somebody actually has a name. And I think it's remarkable here that Lazarus, the poor man, who in earthly standards was basically not even fully human, at least he's not regarded that way, that the dogs can lick his swords, 
And listen, if you're a Middle, Middle Easterners, dogs are not pets. <laughs> my next door neighbors do not like dogs, just tell you, they're my Kurdish neighbors. You do not have dogs for pets. You have birds for pets, cats for pets. You do not have dogs. Dogs are filthy creatures in the Middle East. So this is an abhorrent idea that this poor man would have dogs licking his sores, right? He's, he's, not, he's not dignified in any sort of way, and yet in this parable he has a name. And the rich man, the rich man has no name. The one who has seen in this life is less than human is named, and the one who had all the glory in this life is pictured as so dehumanized by his self-absorption that he doesn't even get a name. I think that's remarkable. I also think what's fascinating is the rich man doesn't complain about what he's receiving. Now, again, it's a parable. I don't want to press this too much, but it does correspond to a theme that you find throughout the New Testament that every knee will one day bow at the name of Jesus. And there's, dis there's you know, dispute among Bible scholars about whether that will be grudgingly or mournfully or joyfully. But he seems to have bowed to what has been given to him. He doesn't object to the sentence and the justness of it. And then this whole thing about Moses and the prophets. Those who refuse in this parable are pictured as not being able to be convinced even if one came back from the dead, which of course is a fascinating foreshadowing to what Jesus himself is going to do. But I also, I remember uh, years ago when I first started in RUF, I remember somebody saying, you know, you know, this is Reformed University Fellowship, and sometimes you know, we might come across a text that deals with like free will and predestination, and those are topics nobody likes to talk about. But you know the topic that in some ways is even more offensive? The sufficiency of Scripture. This is a strong passage on the sufficiency of Scripture. You have enough with the scripture. You don't need somebody coming back from the dead. Maybe you thought, well, if only Jesus would really prove to me that he's alive. If only Lazarus would come back from the dead and convince my brothers there really is life after death. You have the word of God that's enough. You live in a world where the word of God is available to you. Now, I'm not going to bring up, I'm not going to talk about because I don't know. What about those who've never heard? I don't know. But I know that if you're in this room, you live in a world in which the word of God is available to you and Jesus says that's enough for you to be able to turn to him. But to, to, to really understand hell, particularly in our postmodern kind of world and mindset, we have to understand what the Bible says about sin that it's not primarily to be thought of as breaking the rules, as rupturing a relationship, and dehumanizing slavery. Sin is slavery. It's one of the ways that the Bible pictures it, and it's a particularly important one for us. The trajectory of slavery to anything, be it alcohol, fame, money, is always dehumanization. Think of in the Narnia stories how Edmund became an actual dragon as his greed was left unchecked. Or the ring race in the Lord of the Rings who lived for power and ended up enslaved to their own lust for revenge that literally dehumanized them and emptied them out, shriveled them up, if you would. But I think one of the best um, explanations of this is from a commencement speech 
that David Foster Wallace gave in 2005. Maybe you've run across this. It was at a place called Kenyon College. This is remarkable. He's not, uh, well, he's actually passed away, um, took his own life, but he, um, as far as I know, is not a Christian, but there's remarkable insight in this. Listen to what he says. Speaking, imagine him speaking to you, because this is a college commencement speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, the only thing, the thing that's a standing reason for choosing one of those is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. So what is hell? C.S. Lewis, in his great book, The Great Divorce, which is a fictional book, and it's not him saying this is how it works, but it's a fascinating book about people that are in hell and every day get to ride a bus to the outskirts of heaven and have the opportunity to get off the bus and go into heaven. And and they all have various excuses for why they won't go. Uh, I I remember one of the ones that always really, um, really got to me was the one who basically is like, how can we really know the truth? I mean, there's people have this idea, these people have this idea. Um, You know, you just have to keep an open mind about everything. And then it says, and he ran off to join his discussion group in hell. Um, C.S. Lewis in another place says, what's the point of an open mind if it's not to close on truth when you find it? Um, Lewis at one point says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Because the thing about all the people is they all choose to stay in hell. They do, because they're all so concerned that if they give glory to God, it will take away their own glory. Ultimately, they get what they want. The Bible describes that as God giving them over. You see, God doesn't have to get in there and muck up the works. The, the, the picture is not a bunch of people who are wanting to have a relationship with God, and he's like, sorry, not for you. That's not the picture at all. Every one of us has spurned God's love. Every one of us. Yet in spite of this, God sent his son to live and die in the place of sinners, and he freely promises 
that any who come to him will find rest and eternal life. But for those who refuse, God has said he will give them over to their choice. But I hope you understand, the Bible isn't just out to scare us. The Bible actually spends more time talking about what we would be missing. It wants to draw us to embrace what we were made for. And I love the way Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, says this. She says it this way, heaven in biblical terms is not primarily a place. It is shorthand for the full blessing of relationship with God. It is the prodigal son come home. It is the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It is the new heavens and the new earth where God's people with upgraded resurrection bodies will enjoy eternity with him at a level of intimacy into which the best of human marriage gives us no more than a mere glimpse. Heaven is home, an embodied experience of deep relationship with God and his people on a recreated earth. Hell is the opposite. It's the door shut in the face of the unrepentant wicked son. The divorce certificate delivered at the moment of remorse, the criminal receiving his just desserts. If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. Again, is this true? Or is it a fairy tale? And you have to decide. There's one more crucial reason why we can't discard the notion of hell. And it's this. Hell is one of the key ways to know just how much God loves you. See, you can't make sense of the Garden of Gethsemane and what caused Jesus literally to collapse to his knees in agony unless you understand what he was really facing. He didn't cry out when they beat him. He didn't cry out when they put a crown of thorns on him. What made him cry out? What made him say, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the cup is, a, is an image all through the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath that he will make his enemies drink to the very dregs. And Jesus says, that's the cup appointed for me. And I don't know how I can do this. Well, we know, we know what made Jesus shrink. He tells us on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, I know college and friendships are hard. I know sometimes it's, it's just awful. Like somebody that you thought was your friend backstabs you, maybe just doesn't want to hang out with you and you don't even know why. But that's nothing compared to a spouse saying, I never want to see you again. And that gives you just a glimpse of what Jesus was facing. The one who had only ever known perfect love and relationship with his father as he anticipates, even anticipating what it's going to feel like to have the wrath of God poured upon him, the wrath that we deserved. He falls to his knees and it says that his agony was so great, his sweat was like great drops of blood. 
That is not a pretty scene. But the love of God is not mere sentimentality. It's real. Martin Luther said one time, you have to get used to the idea that you have a real savior who died for real damnable sins. He was not playing around at all. And that's the best news that you could ever hear. What Jesus was experiencing, he did willingly for us. There was a hymn I wanted us to sing that we weren't able to, but I just want to read you this one verse. It's a hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Doesn't that sound like an RUF hymn? (laughs) And it's in a minor key, and it's real slow, um, but it's great. We're going to sing it one of these days. Um, it, It was written by an Irish hymn writer in the 1800s. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. Yet the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The deepest stroke that pierced him was experiencing the wrath of his father. And Tim Keller said one time, He hears people say to him, my God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. And and Keller responded this way, what did it cost your kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did he endure in order to receive us? Where did this God agonize, cry out? Where were his nails and thorns? The only answer is, well, I don't think that was really necessary. How ironic. In our effort to make God more loving, we've made God less loving. His love in the end, in that way of thinking, needed to take no action. It was mere sentimentality, not love at all. The worship of a God like this will be impersonal, cognitive, ethical. There will be no joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. We would not sing to such a being, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I heard Keller give this illustration once about thinking about the cross and and imagining this scene of a burning building and, and, and there's a woman out in front of the burning building and a man walks up and he says, let me show you how much I love you. And he dashes into the burning building and he's killed. That's just stupid. It's a completely different situation. The situation that the gospel presents, that the man comes up and, and, and the woman says, my baby, my baby. And he dashes in and he's killed saving the baby. Well, that's heroic. If there was no need for Jesus to die, it was the stupidest thing ever. It wasn't heroic, it wasn't noble. But if what he did was necessary, and Jesus prayed, if this doesn't have to happen, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It was necessary. One last point. There is no love without wrath. A God without wrath is a God without love. Becky Pippert, I don't, some of you guys are too young to remember, but in the 70s, 80s, when I was your age, uh, her, her book, uh, Out of the Salt Shaker, was a really helpful book on evangelism. Um, she, she explained it this way. Think of how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance 
as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. The Bible's teaching on hell is sobering stuff. But it's also the doorway into understanding the love of God as more than mere sentimentality. Let's pray and then we're going to sing one last hymn.